this is Secret Sauce, a podcast about the secret ingredients and in artwork in life. I'm your host, Becca Brelli, and this is episode 22, Art, Vulnerability, and Canaries. So before we dive into that title, um, this is going to wrap season one. Y'all, check it out. I just <laughs> discovered... Um, I was invited to a podcast called the all talk podcast. It's, um, done by these four awesome, interesting guys out of LA. And I interviewed with them about a week ago and I will leave the link to the interview in the show notes. If you want to check it out, it was really fun. Um, and I was chatting with them and I learned a couple of things and I think I should have known these things because I, I listen to podcasts. I don't just do this one, (laughs) but I think I wasn't necessarily making the connection between following some of the patterns of other podcasts. The first one being that seasons are a thing. It (laughs) gives people a break. (laughs) And the other thing I learned from them is that they would record their episodes in chunks, like sometimes three or four a day. So they weren't having the pressure of, you know, a looming deadline to release another episode each week. And I'm so excited. I'm going to do it. I'm going to try both those things. So I'm going to take four weeks off after this um, episode. So I have an opportunity to line up some of the people that I've been really wanting to come recording their interviews. And we'll just start fresh with another batch of 22 episodes. I like that number. I feel like 22 is a good power number. Um, If you're into numerology, that's a good number. I also have noticed if if y'all ever get in the habit of recording your voice, you'll start to notice things. And I'm noticing I'm saying um a lot today, which may or may not go away as the episode goes on. I (laughs) apologize ahead of time. It's also likely that I say um many episodes and I'm just noticing it now. (laughs) I want to tell you a story about uh, a story I've never told publicly before. I want to tell you the story about my thesis research at the University of Texas. Uh, That is what brought me to Austin. In 2010, I um, was accepted and entered a graduate program in art education there. Prior to that, I was a public school art teacher. Also had done my undergrad in art education. And I've, I realized I don't, I don't totally know why it popped into my head really strongly this week to tell the story here. Because it's never crossed my mind to talk about it before. And yet it's such an important story. It, I realized as I was thinking about it this week that my thesis research, absolutely, I would say more than any other single thing that happened in the early 2010s <laughs> is why I chose to try to work for myself. And... I didn't realize that until just last week. And it's so powerful. It was a powerful thing to realize. Um, There there it is again. (laughs) And I was overcome by some feelings of, of comfort, honestly, around it. And I thought perhaps it would give some of you comfort as well. Speaking of comfort, this episode is sponsored by my first ever virtual independent art series, Drawing for Comfort During Uncertain Times. It starts Thursday. I am so pumped. We have a sweet little group. It was really advantageous to release an eight-session series out the gate, and so I was pretty freaking excited (laughs) excited when registration happened. And we were also able to, because of people like you registering at the standard rate, you made possible scholarships for others who are having a challenging time. And 
I'm, it was awesome. We were able to offer a scholarship to everyone that applied, which was huge. And thank you. Thank you for that. I, even full price, the series is about half as much per session as a traditional two hour workshop. Um, it includes so many extra things. We have a virtual community space to share artwork that is not on Facebook. I'm really excited to talk about that. <laughs> There's access to personal one-on-one meetings with me, obviously live live sessions to make things together. Four guest teachers are coming to share their specialties. And then, of course, the recordings, which you'll have access to forever and ever. And it's going to be lovely. Registration ends Wednesday at noon. So if you're interested, click on the link in my bio on Instagram or go to BeccaJBurley.com or you can look in the show notes of the podcast episode. The link will be there as well. If you can't register this time, I will be holding this series quarterly until times are more certain. (laughs) So that could be that could be for a while we don't know um let's dive in art vulnerability and canaries i talked a little bit about the early like the early phases of my research at ut last episode and maybe that's part of why it was in the forefront of my mind to begin with but at if I'm, I am repeating myself a little bit for those that listened last week, but this time in my life was a really happy time. I have very vivid, lush, juicy memories from my time at UT. And a huge part of the reason, I feel like a lot of people listening who are just really in the thick of a professional life as an adult they might have a you might have a family you have a boss you have a rush hour commute maybe not right now maybe you're working at home like a lot of people but if you are like fully into your adult life i think a lot of people can relate to what i'm about to say which is getting to i had you know a good five years of experience in a professional adult situation. I graduated in 2003 from from undergrad, but then, you know, I kind of went to Miami, Florida to, I guess, now you would call them gap years, although gap years weren't really a thing back then. <laughs> I just took two years and went to South Florida and waited tables on the beach and had a good time and, and eventually realized that I was never going to use my degree in South Florida where any old server was making like six figures, which back in 2004 was unheard of. (laughs) It was pretty awesome. And I wanted, I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to be a teacher. And so I returned to Ohio and I took a year part-time preschool teaching position while I got my bearings and then eventually landed an art teaching position in a suburb of Akron. I did that for five years. And then, you know, in Ohio, you have to get a a master's to renew your teaching license. And that was what brought me to, to UT. But what I didn't really realize until I was there in school was how heavenly that is when you have just spent five years as a freaking adult in in the cruel, cruel world. <laughs> and And fully acknowledging I have a lot of privilege as an employed, educated white woman, really tons of privilege. And for all people, the grind of adult life is really challenging and and school doesn't really prepare you for that if school feels hard but it's not the same kind of hard the the kind of hard that i'm talking about in adult life um it's the kind that becomes grading every day is the same 
So I got to UT and my life got exciting again. Every day was something new and wild and adventurous. And on top of that, it was wildness and adventure in my very favorite field ever, art and teaching. I I couldn't get enough. I I couldn't get enough of how special this time was going to be. I really wanted to squeeze every drop of joy <laughs> I could out of my two years, which being you know candid isn't the best method of joy. <laughs> like achieving joy doesn't usually involve pressure and extraction. <laughs> but that was that was how I viewed it because there was this time limit, this two years. And so when I decided to pitch my thesis topic, I went all out. So this was a thesis program doing, you know, scientific studies <laughs> and publishing a large book-like document about it. And so I, and I have this really clear memory of sitting down in the professor who was leading the thesis proposal course. And she was, you know, all ears, Borelli, what do you want to do? do? And I said, okay, this is what I want to do. I am interested in teachers specifically how is it why is it that some teachers seemingly wield great invisible power with kids why is it that some teachers can walk into a room and get totally ignored or even outright disrespected even before they've done anything and other teachers can walk into a room without saying a word and everyone gets quiet there's this reverence, this respect that seems to come without any actual technique or strategy. I'm fascinated by this. This was not something that was taught to me in undergrad. We focused all on systems and management and technical skill. And then I got into teaching and there was this massive part of the experience that was energetic that there was something about who I was that kids reacted to. And if I could figure out how to shift myself, I, I was finding I could shift the kids too. It was a, honestly a lot like Caesar Milan and the Dog Whisperer, if you ever watch that show. Little children are so much like dogs. And for that matter, adults are too, but in a different way. <laughs> so, and I remember my professor, not only did she completely shoot down my idea, but I remember there was this almost disdain or distasteful energy in in her response to me. She was a few years from retirement herself. And, and actually a lot of my professors were, which ended up being such a beautiful thing. And they were able to bless us with this wealth of knowledge over decades of a career. But they also then, of course, had this wealth of dealing with bullshit. <laughs> that was, And I, I realize now, I didn't realize it then sitting in her office, but now I realize if you decide to be an art professor anywhere, <laughs> you deal with a certain amount of bullshit. I'm sure all professors deal with bullshit just like any career, but in the arts, the the biggest bullshit of all is that you're constantly having to claw and scrape for, for funding. That universities are much more likely to, you know, shovel money towards healthcare, tech, technology, science, math, law, business, all the things, but art. <laughs> And one of the things I've learned, and I'm, I'm guessing a lot of people that are listening to this who may also work in the arts can relate, 
one of the things I've learned is that it creates this energy or context in art professions, especially for professors. To be taken seriously, you need to do serious things, right? So a lot of research in the arts leans towards things that are already valued in university settings like science, technology, engineering. (laughs) If you can connect art to one of those things, that's great research, right? But if you are coming into my office telling me you want to research invisible energies from teachers, now I'm annoyed with you, which is pretty much what happened. And at the time, I was considering pretty seriously PhD work after grad school, which obviously never ended up happening. But because my professor knew that I was interested in that, she used it as sort of an underpinning for her next point, which was Rebecca. Like, if you want to do this for your thesis, I'm not going to stop you. But if this is something you think you would like to continue to do, and if you want to continue to work in a university environment, please don't go down this path now because you will be fighting an uphill battle your entire career. And there was a lot of disdain. Like, I think she just thought I was completely nuts. (laughs) And I was, I was so bummed. And then also just felt strongly that I should take her advice. So I went back and forth on it for a few months and I finally settled on this thesis question, which I'm going to say verbatim now and then give you the dummy version. Not that you're dummies, but it sounds way more boring than it actually is. (laughs) So the thesis question was, in what ways might public school art teachers use art making processes to reflect on the intersection of their personal identity and professional practice? AKA, how does art making help our teachers reflect on themselves and their work? <laughs> so the thing that really made this decision, this research decision so much more viable was that I happened to mention it to the to the director of school and family programs at the Blanton. If you live in Austin, you know immediately what I'm referring to. If you're outside of Austin, the Blanton is the preeminent art museum here in town. It is also connected to the University of Texas. It's on campus. And I was doing my internship there at the time, gallery teaching. And my boss, when she heard about my potential thesis direction, said, oh my gosh, please research that. And I would love to collaborate with you. And that sealed the deal. We partnered together and the Blanton sponsored a summer art making workshop for Austin independent school teacher, independent school district art teachers. And they would come for eight weeks every Saturday. We would make stuff together. We would talk about it, share. They were going to keep journals. I would take lots of photos. Um, We would record all of our conversations. I would extract all this data and then go and see what I could find. If that sounds a little weird to you, it sounded really weird to me, to me. I'm, I'm not a scientist. I, I just even approaching art in this way felt weird. I thought, well, like, I I think I was really hung up on this idea that science is mostly test tubes and solutions and white lab coats and it was really challenging for me to expand my definition of science into what might I find if I sit down with a group of teachers and make stuff with them, what might come out of it. And so had I had to write a hypothesis and my hypothesis was some, and I'm paraphrasing because it's been a minute since I've looked over this thesis. I should have done it before recording this episode And I just couldn't bring myself to do it for reasons I'll explain later. And, but I remember it was, my general hypothesis was that I thought teachers were going to be able to, you know, garner or glean information about their spiritual lives um, through art making in a way that they probably couldn't through 
you know, other types of professional development. Because this that's what this was. It was a professional development um, opportunity. They were going to get credit for it. And so... <laughs> And then, and then after that, I didn't really know. I thought, well, I don't know. Like, I haven't, it was just a fascinating time. We end up, and it was a blast. We end up, I mean, this was my dream to sit down with other art teachers and make stuff for eight weeks and talk about it. I, I just couldn't pinch myself hard enough, honestly. And then it's over. I take all the photos of everything they've made. I take all of their journals. I take all of their recordings of all these sessions. And I take all of these Q&A worksheets they did. I go back to my little space in Hyde Park, which is, you know, a, an old neighborhood north of campus here in Austin. And I had five roommates at the time. We were living in this big old house and I was so overwhelmed. I had no idea how how to even begin looking through this data. It, it was hard for me to even view it as data <laughs> to begin with. And my my thesis chair recommended, look, you're an artist. You're obviously probably very visual. She said, why don't you just get everything you have? And if you have like a big space in your house, see if you can just make a mind map of it. And so I told my roommates I got permission to use this wall we had that stretched between the kitchen and the dining room. It was this huge open floor plan and this big blank wall. And I, I just started taping stuff up there, like journal entries and quotes from teachers and pictures of their artwork. And it more than anything, it looked like a scene from Law and Order. Law, Law and Order. I can't talk. Law and Order. Like where they bust into some serial killer's den and he has all these terrifying bits of things on the wall connected with red string. <laughs> That's kind of what it was like. It was it was actually not not helpful at all. And I was starting to to freak out a little bit because I really wanted to graduate that May. I didn't really have an option to to delay it any longer. And I thought, you know, I'm a good writer. I could just make something up, you know. I was pretty much about to make something up. And then I had a bike accident. It was the best, worst thing (laughs) that could have happened at that time. It It should have been no big deal. I was not even in the road. I was on a sidewalk by campus. I was p- maybe pushing three or four miles an hour as I was slowly about to turn into a parking lot that cut across to where my home was. And it was just a weird fluke thing. These couple holding hands, probably loving on each other, didn't see me. They stepped in front of my bike. And I went to swerve. I wasn't going fast, so... I should have been able to swerve, but I cut the wheel too hard and I tipped. And because I had clips, I couldn't unclip my foot fast enough to catch my my body with my foot. And so I just tipped over with the bike and I didn't have a helmet on. So I hit my head on the ground, which even minor head injuries, if you're not familiar, often involve lots of blood. (laughs) And so... I immediately, I I did have a concussion. I was really woozy and out of it. Some very sweet, good Samaritan scooped me up, put my bike in his truck and drove me in a daze. I kept telling him, I'm fine. Don't worry. (laughs) He was just ignoring the shit out of me in my concussed state. Took me to the hospital and... Four stitches later and a brain scan later, thankfully no no brain injury, I was sent home with tons of road rash and orders to take off a week of school. And I was mortified. I, I thought I can't <laughs> afford to take off. I And so I talked to my professor. She said, it's okay. She said, take the week, do really relaxing things. And then you can start writing again next week. 
And because of that, I started fleshing through all of the recordings from all of the, the workshop sessions that I had done with these art teachers. And it was in listening to their stories, because stories are my favorite, <laughs> that I found a commonality among their experiences that I was not expecting. And this is what it was. All of them, in every session, in some way or another, said a version of this. I don't make art anymore because I'm exhausted. And it's a kind of exhausted that is specific to making stuff. Like I have energy to go home and make dinner for my kids, but I have no energy to make stuff. This is what I heard from every single participant in my study in some way, shape, or form. And I, I freaked out. I freaked out because that had been my experience. And I hadn't even connected the dots until, until then. You know, I started teaching in 2005. And by 2006, I completely stopped making art. And I didn't really make art for myself again until 2011. And that exact experience was happening like clockwork to these other teachers. All of them. It had been years since they'd made stuff. And the thing that had drawn them to my workshop was that there were so few professional development credit opportunities that involved making stuff. Making art for themselves, right? Like plenty of professional development and learning how to make lesson plans for kids, right? Totally different to be doing self-expression as professional development. And so I started to go back and flesh through all these interviews and I stumbled across this one. And it seemed to be sort of the heart of the issue for this one particular teacher, but then all of the teachers were massively in agreement with her as she shared this particular story. And she kind of bumbled through it because I think she was struggling to find words to say what her experience was, but it went something like this. She said, I don't know if I can really describe how tired I am in this job. She said, it's a type of tired that I don't experience anywhere else in my life. She said, it's like all the kinds of tired together. Because when you are giving to children, you're giving energies in all the levels. It's emotionally tiring, psychologically tiring, intellectually tiring, energetically tiring, <laughs> physically tiring. She said, I, I just have to... I have to dig so deep to come up with the energy to do this work that I have to protect my energy. It's so precious. And she goes, I don't know if this is the right metaphor, but she used the metaphor of a wall. She's like, I just have to wall myself off from things so that I can keep my energy for these kids. And there's something about that wall that makes it really hard for me to make stuff. And I don't know what it is. And it was, it was an interesting metaphor. I, I wasn't totally following at the time. But I remember in the recording, you can hear the teachers saying, yes, they were, they were feeling her answer. And, and if I was being honest, I was feeling it too. I, was feel, I felt what she meant, even though I intellectually didn't quite understand the concept of this wall and how it functioned. And so... I started to pour over all of the journal entries and look at themes and all of their art and some stuff started to connect. And ultimately, the biggest finding in this study was, like my professor said, it would be something that I hadn't predicted in my hypothesis. And that was this, that... Um, art, the kind of art that we do as kids, the first kind of art, the primal art that we do when we're really little, 
that's not for money, that's not for fame, that's not for anyone else. That's just for ourselves, for our own comfort and healing and grounding and whatever. There's so many reasons that we all choose to make stuff. It's different for everybody. But the reasons that connect to ourselves, that kind of art can only happen when we are supremely vulnerable. And this was, you know, this is interesting timing to be talking about vulnerability. Vulnerability has become so much more mainstream because of researcher Brene Brown from the University of Houston. I, I'm guessing most people that listen to this podcast also listen to Brene Brown, but if you haven't, I'm not going to rehash much of her stuff here because she would do a way better job than me. You should just immediately after listening to this go listen to her speak listen to her ted talk pick up one of her books it's she's wonderful and vulnerability is her jam and one of the aspects of Brene's definition of vulnerability is an ability to face yourself honestly and to take risks honestly and that is a hundred percent what making art for yourself is like. I want a tangent here though, because I'm not just talking about making art on paper or canvas or with clay or with music or with a poem. I'm talking about artistry as an experience of anything, which is a way of looking at art that isn't super mainstream, but that is written about in Art and Experience by John Dewey. There's lots of people who have studied Dewey's work and talk about this way of looking at artistry, that artistry is a quality of experience that you can bring to anything. And I love that idea. It means that when my husband is outside gardening, he is an artist. When I'm outside gardening, I'm just, I'm just going through the motions. <laughs> because the quality of love and presence that he brings to that process, I just don't. It's not my process. Whereas if Jason were to sit down with markers like I do... You know, it would be the inverse situation. That there's a love and presence that when we bring it to anything, anything can become artistic. It's why sometimes you see a mother braiding her daughter's hair and it feels like an art form. And other times it just looks like a chore, right? That's what artistry and experience is. And... That kind of art making requires vulnerability. There's plenty of kinds of art making that don't. When I was painting signs at Trader Joe's and I was, you know, doing a chalkboard about macaroni. No, it was actually weirdly an art form that wasn't an art form. It was more of a, it almost became more scientific, right? It was like a formula of how do I make a sign that's going to function in the grocery store? There wasn't... And that was, and, and to be fair, that was a lesson that I learned at Trader Joe's. I have this vivid memory of really early on just chugging away on black beans and corn, canned black beans and canned corn. It, it was going to be an end cap to do taco fillings or something. And... I was just erasing and starting over. And finally, my boss came back and he, he said, Borelli, it's tacos. It's tacos. Stop it. This isn't, this isn't your sole expression right now. And I don't, there, it's, it snapped me out of it. And I remember one of my coworkers said, let's just put this over here and you can do something else. You know, let's get out of this mode. Because I was in a mode of trying to express my heart in this chalkboard Right, So it's possible that both kinds of making are really important. I'm not suggesting that 
capitalism and art is always bad, not even close. Having that scientific disconnection from the chalkboard making after that made my job so much easier. And when it comes to making art at home for myself, I have to be vulnerable. And I think, and, and, not, and, and, and not even as I think, that's the wrong word. I discovered as I was pouring over all of these interviews and Q&As and all of this recorded dialogue from these teachers, I realized what they were trying to say in a really roundabout way was, I can't be vulnerable because my job requires me to block things so that I can survive. And I I know so many people listening to this know what that feels like. It's not just teachers that feel that way. There are institutions and systems of work that function in our country and in our world that absolutely require in some ways that people cut off access to parts of their spiritual experience so that they can survive the work that they're supposed that they're that they're that's paying their bills that parts of the work that we do is so out of alignment with our spiritual selves (laughs) that we have to wall it off in order to be able to do the work And just like Brene Brown says, okay, I'm going to say one more thing that she says. (laughs) Just like she says, you can block, if you block the bad, you also block the good. And there was this whole room of teachers taking my workshop who were saying, I'm blocking out the stress and anxiety that this job does to my spirit so that I can do this job. But when I sit down to make stuff, I don't have access to the vulnerability I need to make things in a way that is meaningful to me. And so I don't do it. And I realized that in a weird and really beautiful way, art making of all kinds, I'm talking about the art as an experience, right? So this applies to my husband in the garden. This applies to people tinkering on their cars, (laughs) any type of artistry and experience that artistry becomes a canary for the spirit. And the metaphor I feel like has been used so much that I'm guessing most people know it, but if you haven't heard the metaphor, this is the metaphor of the canary. Historically, canaries would be caged and taken into coal mines because they were sensitive and small. And if toxic fumes started to fill the cave when the coal miners were working, they would know that it was dangerous and they had to get out when the canary passed out. Or if we're being honest, died. It's kind of a cruel practice. (laughs) And it probably also saved a lot of coal miners. The idea being, and it's a metaphor now, the canary has become a metaphor for anything that wakes you up to danger before the danger is going to overtake you. And I started to realize as I was pouring over all this data and connecting all these dots that art making is a war, the, an inability to make stuff is a warning that your soul and your spirit are in danger of fatigue or even maybe a certain kind of death. I feel like that sounds a little bit dramatic because death is such a permanent word. But the thing about soul death is that it's never permanent. The soul never permanently dies. (laughs) So it can experience a form of death. I've experienced many in my life and I'm guessing a lot of people listening to this have too. And the beautiful thing about the soul is it can be reborn over and over. But it was really surprising for me to discover that art functioned this way, that art was a canary for people. And I, I think there might be some people that take issue with this, or, or maybe taking issue isn't the right way to phrase it, but they might have some questions around this idea. Because 
there's this really popular idea in professional art circles, especially, and I would even go so far as to say not just popular, but also valid, that art isn't going to just find you inspired all the time. That feeling like you want to make art isn't a realistic barometer for making stuff. And a lot of really good professional artists know this, that if you wait for inspiration, most of the time you'll be waiting forever. A lot of, of the art making process is sitting down every day and doing it. And sometimes you will feel inspired and you'll feel rainbows and unicorns and all of the things. And other times you'll just be kind of like a workhorse mucking through it. But that that discipline is really important part of it. And I know that this, I remember as I was sort of fleshing out some of this data, I was thinking, is, is this what's happening here? Are these teachers just lacking the discipline to sit down and to make an art practice? You know, are they just waiting for that feel good feeling that they used to have? And then they're connecting their inability to access that feeling or that discipline as connected to the exhaustion of their job. And I think this is probably something that would require further research. I certainly couldn't answer that question in my single thesis. But I got the sense through all of these interviews and conversations and artifacts and and um, and, and samples of stuff from this workshop that the answer was no, that this was different. That these teachers were like marathon runners being asked to go for a jog with the dog around the block for fun after the marathon. That it was literally not in them <laughs> to do it. That there was a creative fatigue that was connected to their work that was absolutely leaving them just truly tapped out. And what an interesting dilemma that this decidedly artistic career path, not just an artistic career path, but a career path where you're supposed to be teaching young humans how to cultivate artistry in their own lives, how interesting that this profession is set up in such a way that it fatigues the educators to the point where their own creative spiritual lives are just barren. I thought that was fascinating. And and I kept coming back to this idea, but the art is the canary. Because if you can't find it in yourself (laughs) to make your own stuff ever, maybe it's a sign that your day-to-day life is slowly taking bits and pieces from you spiritually. And can you get ahead of it early? Can this be a warning sign for people before it gets really bad? I think we know a lot of those stories. I I know I do. Some really close to me in my life. People getting into their sixth, seventh, eighth decade of life and looking back and saying, wow, most of that was doing stuff that I thought I had to do instead of stuff I wanted to do. And, And I feel strongly after sitting with these teachers and mucking over all this data and typing up a 150-page document about it, that a deep and prolonged inability to creatively make stuff is a sign that something in your day-to-day life has to change or you're going to end up in a situation later that sucks a lot more. (laughs) Kind of like the coal miners. If you ignore the canary, you're, you're screwing yourself. And I, when I was thinking about sharing this story on this episode, I thought, is this a comforting story? I don't, I don't totally know. I, I remember as I was writing about it uh, in grad school, I remember crying 
and, and different portions of the paper because I, I was mourning this loss that I didn't even know that I'd had until I'd had this experience with these teachers. And also, it was an intervention that was the most lovely intervention of all. I, I really, truly left grad school with this completely upended vision for what my career was going to be going forward. And my, my, I had a, so I had a thesis chair and a thesis reader. People that have gone through this process might have something similar. And my reader was also the head of the, the art education department. And he told us in one of the first classes of our first year, in the program, he said something that I didn't really wrap my head around until just last week as I was reflecting on sharing this story with you. He said, if he's like, to the extent that you're able, he goes, I want you to let go of this idea that the work that you do here is going to change the world. He said, I hope it's not a bummer for you to hear this from me, but I'm I want to just put that truth in your lap right now. Your thesis is not going to change the world. It's not. Like he didn't even give us the the maybe option. (laughs) And then he said, but I promise it will absolutely change your world upside down. If you pick something you care about, it will change your world. And I, (laughs) I really... I'm sure he gave that advice after years of watching people just throw themselves into this process. And I, and I freaking totally fell into the trap. I, I remember ugly crying in his office more than a dozen times, you know, convinced that I was squandering my one chance (laughs) at having joy (laughs) because I knew that when my schooling was done, I was going to have to go back into the grind of everyday, of everyday professional life And I needed to make these two years count. And what I didn't realize was happening was that my whole mental model for work was shifting. And when I left, my world was turned upside down. I thought, what if I try working for myself? Is there a way for me to work for myself so that I can make art and make money? so that I can make art and have energy, so that I can teach kids and adults and have a spiritual life. That was, that was always my goal for, for doing this, y'all. And I fucking just realized it last week. That's insane. That's what Secret Sauce is about, by the way. There's this fascinating quote by Bill Watterson, the the creator of Calvin and Hobbes comic strip where he says, I don't know where I'm going, but I'm going to know when I get there. And I've honestly, I I started secret sauce with that in mind. My experience of being an artist and working for myself and being a teacher and heck being a wife, being a friend, having a human body has been one big, one big experiment and not really knowing what the fuck I'm doing. And I think one of my, favorite quotes is by Ricky Gervais, where he says, the truth, (laughs) the truth is life gets so much better when you realize that no one knows what they're doing either. No one knows what they're doing. No one knows where they want to go until they get there. It's kind of amazing that I've been working for myself for Almost, I'm going to be starting at the end of this month, at the end of October, I will start my fifth full-time year working for myself. That's crazy that I've worked that long for myself without really knowing what I was doing. And I realized as I was reflecting on this freaking thesis, that it was, that it was, how can I build my own cave that doesn't need canaries? (laughs) Can I create an environment for myself to work in that doesn't need canaries to to warn me about toxic fumes? And it's been a wild ride. I I think 
there was this little tiny part of me that thought, if I work for myself, everything will get better because I won't have the man keeping me down or some version of that narrative, right? (laughs) And it was quickly that I discovered that the man isn't out there. The man's in here between all of our ears. All of us have a version of the man. And I was slave driving myself those first years worse than any boss ever did, worse than any institution ever did. And I had to face that. Or I was just going to recreate another situation like when I was teaching, only in my own in my own business. It was one of the more sobering times that I got to really see the truth in the statement, you can't change the world, you can just change yourself. That if all of us take on that freaking journey and adventure, that's when real change will start happening in the world. To the extent that we're not seeing change in the world is to the extent that people haven't tackled the inner world. At least this is my thought. Take what resonates with you, leave the rest. An art and a desire to make stuff artistically or lack thereof can be the intervention that all of us need. This is what my thesis was about. And it is it changed my world. <laughs> and I think that's a neat. I think that's a neat message for anyone listening to this because, you know, I'm not suggesting everyone go out and write a thesis, but I guarantee that anything that we commit ourselves to in that way will, will change our, our, ourselves. We face who we are in the stuff that we make. And I, it, I mean, it took me years I wrote that dang thesis and published it in 2013 and I'm just now recognizing the ways that it has allowed me to face who I am that's bananas (laughs) does this excite people listening to this like it does me I don't I don't even know you know this is why I think art is so dang cool And one of the reasons why it's so often overlooked, because we're so used to thinking of art as the thing that entertains us or the thing that is frosting on the cake, right? But when you look at it from a spiritual and soul perspective, art is the thing that saves us. It it saves us spiritually. It is a spiritual intervention if we if we let it i think and i'll i'll wrap up by saying this this is how you know i i feel like some people might be thinking but how do i know how do i know if i'm gardening if i'm being artistic about it right Versus like if, you know, Borelli's gardening over here, she gives a shit. <laughs> She's just throwing soil. <laughs> this is one way. I'm sure there's lots of ways, but this is one way that I know when people are using art making spiritually. When they're using art making vulnerably. When they're using art making to come home to themselves. When they're using art making for inner work. There's this range. So on the the really positive side, I would have students leave my class saying, I don't know why, but I just, and I, I would hear this over and over again. I don't know why. I just spent the most soul-sucking day at the office. I barely made it here. I didn't even know how I was going to have the energy to do a three-hour art class And now I'm leaving energized and calm. And I feel like I just meditated for three hours. And I don't even know how that's possible because we were drawing fruit. Right? And then on the other side, there would be people crying. People angry. I had a full-grown man walk out of a painting class and never come back. That's how you know. 
because and often the experience includes both of those poles plus everything in between because when you're facing yourself sometimes it's glorious and you're healing all these things and you leave feeling really great and other times you're facing some shit and you're facing some fears and you're facing some creative voices that told you you weren't good enough and sometimes those voices are so loud that you have to walk out that's how you know if you're doing artistic, vulnerable work. And when you think about the work in that context, it makes total freaking sense why these school teachers didn't have it in them to make stuff vulnerably and openly and candidly because they're just trying to muster up the energy to give to their kids right? And I haven't even talked about the ways that teachers, you know, struggle in like very practical ways, right? They work a full work day and then they go home and grade papers and do lesson planning on the weekends and barely, you know, like they sleep through their entire month of June just to get their energy back from working so much more than the average Joe during the school year. This is a study. I'll actually I'll find the study and I'll post it in the show notes. There have been multiple studies on teacher workflow and they have found that even with summers off, teachers work tremendously hard. Not tre- I'm like using terrible words. They work many more hours than a traditional 9 to 5 or who works year round. It's an exhausting profession. And when you think about the soul work, the spiritual work that's involved in candid candid art making it makes total sense why they would sit down and just I can't do this I don't I don't have it in me I remember feeling that way I tried desperately to make stuff while I was a teacher I even went so far as to get an art studio in Akron in one of the trendiest coolest parts of Akron which was still like a hundred bucks a month or something insane that <laughs> was so affordable and it was the perfect opportunity I was surrounded by a community of creative people there were art walks and art events and there was live music all the time and it was awesome and I never went my studio was barren for an entire year and then I just quit paying the rent because was what was the point That's what it's like when your spirit is struggling. Art is the canary. Yeah. Anyway, I hope this was helpful in some way. Take what resonates with you. Leave the rest. On that note, I love how seriously you all take me when I say that. I have gotten so many amazing messages from people that listen to this podcast asking really thought-provoking questions about some of the topics in this podcast. And it makes me realize that people really question a lot of the stories and think critically and, and disagree with me. And I love that. I love that people feel comfortable enough to message me those things, first of all. And second of all, that they're like feeling comfortable enough to disagree to begin with. I I know that a lot of these things are, they're biased. They're my stories. And so the parts that resonate with you, um, they're for you. And the rest, you can dump it, as, as we always say. I am hoping in the next four weeks while this break is happening that I can share some of the cool questions that people have sent my way in posts on Instagram. If you are interested in following Secret Sauce over on Instagram, there will continue to be links and clips from past popular episodes as well as Q&As from people that listen. And I'm going to get my shit together to bring some new voices. I loved having Jordan here for episode 20 and it made me think very seriously about a series um, that specializes in the voices of other people. What is your secret? 
What is your secret ingredient? What is the thing that you hid from other people for a long time because you're embarrassed and then you discovered that it was your superpower? That is why I want to have people on. I love stories like that. If you have a story like that, you should let me know. If you know someone that has a story like that, you should also let them know to let me know. <laughs> um, I want to have them on. It's it's a fun opportunity to share stories. And until next time, I will be coming at you in the end of November with episode 23. I love y'all.